One of the many things that is so amazing about the Bible is the fact that although written hundreds and thousands of years ago, it is more current and more relevant than anything that is being written today. Not only that, it will continue to be relevant tomorrow and the day after and the week after and the year after until Jesus comes back. That is because it is not merely the word of man. It is the inspired word of God. It is not a dead book. Hebrews 4.12 says, For the word of God is living and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Because the Bible is the word of God, it is eternally relevant. In fact, it's more than relevant. It's ahead of its time. It speaks to the issues of our day, and it even speaks to the issues that will come about in this world in the future. It is stunning to go back through the Bible to find all the passages that were predictions about the future when they were written and to see how they've come to pass with exact precision. I had the opportunity yesterday to speak at the Gideon's State Convention, and they asked me to bring a Bible message, and I decided to make that the topic yesterday to show passages that when they were written were predictions, and they have since been fulfilled with amazing and detailed accuracy. That is one of the most confirming and confidence-building studies you could ever undertake. Time and time and time again, God had his authors write down predictions about the future, and they have been fulfilled with detailed accuracy. You could call all those sections history written in advance. That's exactly what they are. God writes history in advance. He tells us what is going to happen to people, what is going to happen to cities, what is going to happen to kingdoms, and ultimately what is going to happen in this world. And when he does, he makes sure that it is written down so that there is no confusion and no misunderstanding and no backing away from what has been said. That is exactly what we find in the Olivet Discourse recorded in Mark chapter 13. So let's turn there together, please, if you are not already there, to Mark chapter 13, as we continue our trek through Mark's gospel. Our text this morning is verses 9 through 13, but I'd like to begin reading back in verse 5 so that we get the flow of the context in our minds. Mark chapter 13, verse 5. And Jesus answering them began to say, Take heed that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and will deceive many. But when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be troubled, for such things must happen, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be earthquakes in various places, and there will be famines and troubles. These are the beginnings of sorrows. But watch out for yourselves, for they will deliver you up to councils, and you will be beaten in the synagogues. You will be brought before rulers and kings for my sake, for a testimony to them. 
And the gospel must first be preached to all the nations. But when they arrest you and deliver you up, do not worry beforehand or premeditate what you will speak, but whatever is given you in that hour, speak that. For it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. Now brother will betray brother to death, and a father his child, and children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But he who endures to the end shall be saved. This section of Mark's gospel is called the Olivet Discourse. It is called that because Jesus spoke these words from the Mount of Olives overlooking the city of Jerusalem. It begins here in verse 5 and runs all the way through the end of the chapter. It is futuristic in its focus. What I mean is it gives information about what is coming in the future days during the end times. The disciples asked Jesus about the culmination of all things, so Jesus answered their question in this discourse. Therefore, that means that the Olivet Discourse, though given to answer questions from the disciples, was actually given by Jesus for the Jews who will be living at the end of the age. It is intended to be read by the people who will be living at the end of the age. We know that by the statement in verse 14. Jesus said, So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, standing where it ought not, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Notice that parenthetical statement near the end of this verse. That was either spoken by Jesus because he knew this would be read by people in the end times, or it was written by Mark under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit for the same reason. Either way, it shows us that even though Jesus spoke these words to his disciples, they would not be the ones experiencing these things. These things will take place in the future near the end of the age. That's important to keep in mind as we consider our text this morning. Throughout verses 9 through 13, Jesus mentions persecution that will come upon the Jewish people. Now remember, the focus of this discourse is on the Jewish people. We saw that a couple messages ago in the overview message. The disciples asked their questions because of our Lord's statements about the temple, which is obviously a Jewish issue. Furthermore, at the end of verse 15, Jesus says, Let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. It's the Jewish people who live in Judea, right? That's a given. Matthew 24, 20 mentions the Sabbath, which is another Jewish issue. So it's obvious that the Jewish people are the target group for this message. And since the focus is on the end times, we can conclude that these words were recorded to be read by Jewish people living at the end time. They will be the ones who will experience the persecution that is described in our text consisting of verses 9 through 13. They are the you spoken of throughout this passage. They are the ones who will be hated by all. Not only that, during the future seven-year tribulation period, Satan and the Antichrist will unleash all their fury on the Jewish people. 
This fact is depicted for us in Revelation chapter 12. Turn with me for a little bit over to Revelation chapter 12. Revelation chapter 12. <clears throat> when you look back over the last 60 plus years, it is really miraculous that Israel still exists. In May of 1948, the British withdrew from Palestine. On May 14, 1948, Israel declared her independence as a state. On the same day, five Arab armies invaded the state of Israel to destroy her. That precipitated the War of Independence. And amazingly, when all the dust settled, Israel had gained more territory than she would have received in the United Nations Partition Plan developed in November of 1947. Then in June of 1967, there was the Six-Day War with Egypt, Syria, and Jordan. Israel conquered Sinai again, including Gaza, the Golan Heights, and the West Bank. Then in October of 1973, Israel fought the Yom Kippur War. It came about due to a surprise attack in Sinai by Egypt and in the Golan Heights by Syria. Israel was completely unprepared for this attack, and for a while, her existence was hanging in the balance. Still today, it is the stated intention of many of Israel's neighbors to push her out into the Mediterranean Sea and eliminate her existence. Yet Israel still remains, and she will continue to remain, because God has plans, future plans, for that tiny but extremely significant nation. We are told this time and time again in the pages of predictive prophecy, and we see another example here in Revelation chapter 12. I'm going to read this chapter for us. It's not a long one. And then we'll sort of work our way through it to see what it is saying. Revelation chapter 12, verse 1. Now a great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a garland of twelve stars. Then being with child, she cried out in labor and in pain to give birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great fiery red dragon, having seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems on his heads. His tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth to devour her child as soon as it was born. She bore a male child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron, and her child was caught up to God and his throne. Then the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God that, she, that there they should feed her 1,260 days. And war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought, but they did not prevail, nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. Then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren who accused them before our God day and night has been cast down. 
and they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives to the death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea, for the devil has, devil has come down to you having great wrath because he knows that he has a short time. Now when the dragon saw that he had been cast to the earth, <coughs> he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. But the woman was given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness to her place where she is nourished there for a time, times, and half a time from the presence of the serpent. So the serpent spewed water out of his mouth like a flood after the woman that he might cause her to be carried away by the flood. But the earth helped the woman and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed up the flood which the dragon had spewed out of his mouth. And the dragon was enraged with the woman. And he went to make war with the rest of her offspring who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. This is a pivotal chapter in the book of Revelation. It pictures for us important truth about the past and the future in graphic symbolism. John opens this chapter by describing a great sign he saw in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun with the moon under her feet, and on her head a garland of twelve stars. This particular woman represents Israel. The fact that she was clothed with the sun with the moon under her feet depicts Israel as a royal nation. And she is that because she has been chosen by God to be such. God has been pleased to give us the Scripture through the Jewish people and the Messiah through the Jewish people. Every book in the Bible was written by a Jewish person, with the possible exception of Luke and Acts, and that's only a possible exception. And Jesus came through the line of David, through the Jewish people. So God has been pleased to give us the Scripture through the Jewish people and the Messiah through the Jewish people. The garland of 12 stars is an obvious portrayal of the 12 tribes of Israel. John saw another sign in heaven, a great fiery red dragon. There's no question that this is a reference to Satan. Verse 9 removes all doubt because it says, So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of all called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was cast out to the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. In the early verses of this chapter, this great dragon, Satan, tried to devour and destroy the child that was born of the woman. The child, of course, is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Verse 5 makes that clear when it says that this child was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. Verse 6 tells us that this woman fled into the wilderness to be protected and cared for 1260 days. Using the Jewish calendar, that's three and a half years. Why does the woman do that? Verses 7 through 12 partially answer the question for us. The woman Israel will need to be protected for three and a half years because at the midpoint of the seven-year tribulation period, Michael and his angels are going to throw Satan and his angels out of the heavenly realm and they will no longer have access to heaven. That means that Satan will hit this earth with all of his fury and he will be forced to limit his destructive work to the earthly realm. 
That is why verse 12 says, Rejoice, O heavens, but woe to the inhabitants of the earth. Satan will know that his time is short, so he will do everything he can to wreak havoc on this earth, and he will focus much of his venomous hatred on the people of Israel. Israel is still in existence today, but because she still has not embraced Messiah Jesus, she is going to go through a time of immense suffering. There is no question that the Jewish people have suffered down through the centuries, but shockingly, their worst suffering is yet to come. However, God will not allow them to be annihilated. That's what John elaborates on in the last five verses of this chapter. God will not allow them to be annihilated because he has committed himself to bringing them to repentance and salvation and to a place of blessing once again. Israel has not been in that place of blessing for thousands of years now. Let me say it this way. The people of Israel are not at the center of God's saving program right now because the fullness of the Gentiles has not yet come in. And the capital city of Israel, which is Jerusalem, does not occupy the place of prominence that it will one day have under Messiah Jesus because right now it is under the times of the Gentiles. If you know anything about your history, geography, modern day, then you know sitting on top of the Temple Mount are two mosques. So Jerusalem does not occupy the place of godly prominence that it will one day have. But once the fullness of the Gentiles comes in, to use Paul's words from the book of Romans, that is, once God has saved all the Gentiles he has purposed to save, God will turn back to Israel to begin ending the times of the Gentiles. But Satan will try to thwart God's plan. Satan wants to show God to be a liar. God committed himself to Abraham's descendants, and Satan wants to make God a liar. According to this passage here in Revelation 12, during the tribulation period, Satan will attempt to destroy Israel. Zechariah 13.8 seems to indicate that two-thirds of the Jewish population will die during this time. In Matthew 24.21, Jesus said, For then shall be great tribulation, such as was not since the beginning of the world to this time, no, nor ever shall be. There will be satanic persecution, natural catastrophes, unprecedented demonic activity, and much of it will be directed against the people of Israel. That is why Jeremiah chapter 30, verse 7 says it will be a time of Jacob's trouble. And you know another name for Jacob. It's Israel. A time of Israel's trouble. But God will protect and preserve the people to save them. In Zechariah 13, 9, God says, And I will bring the third part through the fire and will refine them as silver is refined and will test them as gold is tested. They shall call on my name. I will hear them. I will say, It is my people. And they will say, The Lord, Yahweh, is my God. God will use the intense suffering of Israel to bring the people to repentance. Beloved, understand, God is just as committed to fulfilling his purposes with Israel as he has ever been. 
Paul says in Romans 11, the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. God made promises to Israel. They are irrevocable. And that commitment is what is behind this picture here in Revelation 12. Notice verse 13. It says, Now when the dragon saw that he had been cast to the earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. The dragon is Satan, and the woman who gave birth to the child is Israel. When Satan is thrown out of the heavens and barred from access to the heavens, as verses 7 through 12 describe, he is going to vent all of his fury on Israel. Verse 14 says, But the woman was given two wings of a great eagle, that she might fly into the wilderness to her place where she is nourished for a time and times and half a time from the presence of the serpent. How long is that? It's three and a half years. Time, times, and a half a time. Three and a half years. God is going to supernaturally protect the people of Israel for the final three and a half years of the tribulation period. And that is why that time period is often called the Great Tribulation. During the first three and a half years, Israel will dwell in safety because the Antichrist will sign some kind of seven-year treaty or agreement with the nation. However, at the midpoint, he will break the covenant and he will seek to annihilate Israel. But that won't happen because this verse describes supernatural protection. It says the woman will be given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness. The picture of wings is used throughout the Old Testament to symbolize God's protection and deliverance. In Exodus 19.4, God said to the people of Israel, you, you have seen what I did unto the Egyptians and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you unto myself. That refers to to God's empowering of them to be able to leave Egypt. And in the same way, in the tribulation period, God will empower Israel to flee into the wilderness. There Israel will be nourished. How? We don't know for sure. Because Scripture doesn't tell us, but maybe God will provide them with manna and quail again like he did under Moses. In our text in Mark 13, Jesus warned the Jews to immediately flee when they see the abomination of desolation. Where will Israel go? Well, I don't want to tell you out loud and give away their secret. No, I don't know. Really, I, nobody knows. Specifically, how will she escape? I don't know. All I know is that she will somehow be supernaturally aided to be protected from the serpent. But listen, Satan won't give up. He won't give up. Verse 15 says, So the serpent spewed water out of his mouth like a flood after the woman, that he might cause her to be carried away by the flood. What is this? I don't know. I just asked the questions around here. I don't have all the answers. God is using symbolic language throughout this chapter so no one can tell you specifically how Satan is going to spew water out of his mouth. But I do know that it means that Satan is going to be tenacious in his attempts to destroy Israel. And in verse 16, it says, But the earth helped the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed up the flood 
which the dragon had spewed out of his mouth. This flood could be a flood of water, or it could be armies flowing like a river, as in the figure of speech used by Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 8, verses 7 and 8. Whatever it is that Satan spews at Israel, whether it's a flood of water or an army of nations, whatever it is, is going to be engulfed by the earth. The earth will open up and swallow the threat, and this will infuriate Satan even further. Verse 17 tells us, And the dragon was enraged with the woman, and he went to make war with the rest of her offspring, who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. Satan was already angry because he couldn't kill Jesus back in verse 4. And he became even more angry when he was thrown out of heaven in verse 9. Now that he can't get to this group of Jewish people, he will be infuriated. So this verse tells us that he will go to make war with the rest of her offspring. To whom is that referring? It could be a reference to Gentile believers of the tribulation period. Or it could refer to the 144,000 special Jewish witnesses back in chapter 7. Or it could refer to Jews who will not be in Israel when the persecution breaks out and don't have to flee into the wilderness. We don't know all the particulars of God's work or how all the particulars of God's work with Israel are going to fit together and play out. But Scripture does tell us, God graciously does tell us, that he has a future plan for Israel. He is going to keep the people of that nation from being annihilated. And if he didn't keep them from being annihilated, they would be annihilated. And he's going to use the tribulation period to bring the Jewish people to saving faith in Jesus, their Messiah. Now, all of this isn't detailed for us in our text in Mark 13. But Jesus does give us many of these details, and he gives us a big-picture overview in that discourse. So let's go back there to our text to see what Jesus said. Mark chapter 13. In verses 5 through 8, which we looked at last week, Jesus describes some of the things that will take place during the first three and a half years of the tribulation period. In verse 8, he called them the beginnings of sorrows or the beginnings of birth pangs. Things are going to get far worse for the people of Israel at the midpoint of the seven-year tribulation period. That's when the Antichrist will break his treaty with Israel and he will begin to persecute them. Also, that's when Israel will lose her protection from the other nations that will have wanted to persecute her, but were hindered from doing so because of this treaty or covenant that's signed at the beginning. So once that is broken, that unleashes all of the fury of Satan, his demons, and people on planet earth who hate the people of Israel. Verse 9, Jesus said, But watch out for yourselves, for they will deliver you up to councils, And you will be beaten in the synagogues. You will be brought before rulers and kings for my sake, for a testimony to them. As you can see from this verse, it has a distinctly Jewish 
flavor to it. Jesus used the word councils or courts, and the Greek word is literally sanhedrins. That's a reference to Jewish courts. Then Jesus mentions being beaten in the synagogues. Again, that's another reference to a Jewish context. So it is clear that the primary application of these words from Jesus is for the Jewish people. They will be the focus of most of the hatred in the tribulation period. The Antichrist will seek to annihilate them, but as we saw earlier, he will be prevented from doing so. The Lord is going to use the horrors of that time to blitz the world with the gospel before the end comes. And so Jesus says in verse 10, and the gospel must first be preached to all the nations. In other words, when you see these things start to happen, that's not the end. It's not quite the end because the gospel must first be preached to all the nations. The Jewish people won't be the only ones who will have the opportunity to hear the gospel and be saved. The gospel is going to be preached in all the world. Many of the people on the planet at the time will reject this good news, and they will take the mark of the beast. But some will hear the gospel, the good news of the kingdom, and will embrace Jesus regardless of the price they have to pay. God is going to make sure that this opportunity is given throughout the world to all the nations. How is he going to do that? It's fascinating to consider. Let me mention a few ways. We know from the book of Revelation that there will be 144,000 Jewish evangelists who will be preaching the gospel of the kingdom throughout the world. In addition, there will be two special witnesses described in Revelation 11 who are able to perform miraculous signs to accompany their preaching of the good news of the coming kingdom. Not only that, according to Revelation 14.6, now catch this one. There will actually be an angel flying around in the sky preaching the gospel to people on planet earth. In Revelation 14, 6, John said, Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people. So God is going to make sure that the people who are living during this time, have the opportunity to hear the gospel, hear the good news, and respond to it. And many will. Not only Jews, but Gentiles. And think about it. That will make people take sides, which will result in severe persecution for believers. That's why Jesus warned in verse 11, but when they arrest you, And deliver you up. Do not worry beforehand or premeditate what you will speak. But whatever is given you in that hour, speak that. For it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. This statement by our Lord is one that has been misquoted time and time again down through the centuries. People quote this verse to say that if you are a pastor or a Bible study teacher, or a Sunday school teacher, or you have that kind of responsibility, you don't ever need to study or prepare because the Holy Spirit will give you what you need to say. Beloved, that is so wrong. If that's what Jesus were saying, 
It's a complete contradiction of 2 Timothy 2.15, which says, Study to show yourself approved unto God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, handling accurately the word of truth. To cite this passage, this verse, and others like it, to justify, justify the neglect of study and meditation is to twist the meaning of Scripture and to take its statements out of the context. Beloved, please hear this. This verse is meant as a comfort for those under life-threatening persecution, not an excuse for laziness in ministry. So don't rob this statement of its powerful reassurance by misquoting or misapplying it or by pulling it out of its context. This is a promise to be claimed under specific circumstances of persecution and specifically what will come in the last days. The last part of this verse says, But whatever is given you in that hour, speak that. For it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. That is a description of the same kind of thing that happened when the writers of Scripture wrote their books and their letters. The Holy Spirit of God supernaturally governed their words and guided their words, even though he used their personalities and their vocabularies. In the same way, Jesus here promises that those who are brought before governors or kings for his name's sake will be given the very words to say in their moment of need. In a sense, they won't even be speaking, but rather the Holy Spirit of God will speak right through them. Now, you, you surely know that can't be said for every pastor's sermon, right? It would really be nice if I could pull that trump card on you. Hey, listen, everything I say is directly from the Holy Spirit. Not. It's not the case. That can't be said for every pastor's sermon or every Christian's Bible study or every Sunday school teacher's class or whatever, because that's not what this verse is talking about. This is a promise for specific circumstances that Jesus has in mind. And we know from the context, he is looking ahead to the last days of the seven-year tribulation period. And Jesus warns in verse 12, Now brother will betray brother to death, and the father his child. I mean, this is unimaginable. And children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death. During the tribulation period when the Lord resumes his focus on the lost sheep of the house of Israel, those who represent him during the last days will find themselves persecuted ruthlessly. Their own family members will turn against them and turn them in to the ungodly authorities, even to the point of death. There won't be any neutrality toward Christians like there is somewhat today. What I mean is some people in our world, and you know this, some people in our world hate Christians. That's a, that's a reality. But some people are sort of just neutral. You know, live and let live. Whatever you want to believe, fine. What, you know, just, but they don't love Christians. They don't hate them. They're just sort of whatever. It won't be that way in the future seven-year tribulation period. There won't be any attitude of, you know, whatever you, you want to believe, you can believe it. All believers will be hated 
because of their connection to the Lord, and especially Jewish believers. The Jews will be the target of Antichrist persecution, so Jewish believers will be, you could say, doubly hated. The result will be that many will be killed. Many. But some will endure to the end. And that is what is alluded to in the next verse. Jesus said, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. In Matthew's account of this discourse, you will be hated by all nations, all ethne, all Gentiles for my name's sake. But he who endures to the end, he who bears patiently to the end, shall be saved. The Jewish people will be hated by all nations at that time. Why? We can't say for sure, but one possibility is that the Gentile nations may assume that Israel is somehow responsible for all the catastrophes that are taking place on the earth as described in the first four seals of Revelation chapter 6, which we looked at last week. Whatever the the excuse, and that's just a guess on my part, whatever the excuse, the nations of the world are going to find an excuse to hate and persecute and kill the Jewish people. However, there will be those who survive to the end. And there will be those who remain faithful to the Lord God. And they will be delivered from the horrors of the tribulation period to enter into the glorious millennial kingdom that will be brought by the Lord Jesus in his second coming. Jesus, by the way, is not suggesting here that everyone who dies during the tribulation period is lost and condemned. Some people read it that way. He who endures to the end will be saved. So if you don't make it to the end, you know, if you get killed, you're not saved. No, that's not what he's saying. We know from Revelation 6 and 7 that many true believers will be martyred during the tribulation period. But Jesus is answering the questions that he knew would arise from what he is saying here. He is anticipating the questions the disciples would have. Here's the way they're thinking. Listen, if things are going to get this bad, Jesus, for for the people of Israel, according to what you're saying here, if things are going to get this bad for the people of Israel, and if many are going to defect and turn away, even to the point of being willing to turn in their family members to death, Will there be any who remain faithful and make it to the end? Will there be any? Or basically what they're saying is, will the Jewish people survive? Yes, the Jewish people will survive. In fact, Jesus says, there will be those who endure to the end, and they will be saved from the horrors of the tribulation to enter the kingdom. It's the event that Jesus told us we should pray about. Do you remember his model prayer when the disciples said, Lord, teach us to pray? Jesus said, okay, pray this way. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. What's the next phrase? Your kingdom come. Pray for the kingdom. Pray for the kingdom to come. Will you be a part of that kingdom in the future? You won't be unless Jesus is your king right now. You won't be a part of it in the future unless he's your king now. So if he's not your king, bow to him as your king. Let's bow as we close in prayer.
as we close our time together this morning, please take an honest look at yourself, at your life, at your heart, and ask yourself the question, is Jesus really your king? Is he your king? He is the king, the king. The question is, is he your king personally? Have you submitted to him? Have you surrendered to him? That's what he calls upon us to do. And the day is coming when one day every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. But we don't want to wait until that day because we want to do that in this life, here and now. We want to acknowledge that Jesus is Lord, our Lord. We want to acknowledge that Jesus is King, our King, so that we can pray as Jesus taught us to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I hope and pray you are ready for, to meet the King. And Father, as we close our time together this morning, we are so aware from what we have studied this morning of, of your control over the events on planet earth. You have a plan, and certainly you allow genuine human volition. People make choices and do things, but nothing will ever happen outside of your control. You have a plan, and you are moving the history of planet earth toward the culmination of that plan. And we know from what we read here in Mark 13 and many other passages that before it gets better, it's going to get worse on planet Earth. Because there will come a time, it may be soon, may be far away, maybe in a year, five years, 25 years, 55 years, we don't know. But it will surely happen because as Jesus said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. So what Jesus has said, what Jesus has taught, what Jesus has predicted will certainly come to pass. And we are so grateful and thankful that he has chosen to reveal it to us. Maybe all of our questions aren't answered, but so much has been said about what the future holds. And remind us that the way to be ready for the future, whether that's this afternoon or tomorrow or next week or next year or whatever comes, the way to be ready for the future is to know and love your son, Jesus Christ. So, Father, we pray that that would be true of every one of us gathered here. And if there are those present for whom it is not true, that your Holy Spirit would work in their hearts to draw them to come to know the Lord Jesus and love him and live for him. In whose precious name we pray, amen.